The following sermon is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. This time a year, reflect on the true meaning of what was taking place on the cross, what was taking place at the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. And much like the days leading up to Christmas, called the season of Advent, uh, where we reflect on the meaning of the Incarnation, uh, these days leading up to Easter call, cause us to reflect on uh, His death and His resurrection. And uniquely in this time of the year, we wrestle with this paradox, this paradox of Christianity, paradox of, of Easter that seems to be a contradiction, but really um, there is not. For instance, our series is called, just for a few weeks here, it's called The Beauty of of the cross. That in itself is a, seems to be a contradiction, the beauty of the cross. Um, we might wear a cross around a chain on our neck. We might decorate our homes with crosses on the wall. We name our church Holy Cross, and yet the cross is a symbol of, of a brutal execution of criminals. And it's also a symbol of hope and love and invitation for salvation. And so it's a season where we uniquely confront these things. We look at the depth of sin, and we look at the height of God's love. We invite you into that sober and, and somber reality of, of Good Friday, and also the joyful celebration of Easter just a couple days after. And so this series, we see the true meaning of what was taking place uh, when Jesus was nailed to the cross, and how it's both tragic and beautiful. We sing of the cross. We sang of the cross this morning. We speak of the cross in conversation, but the cross is not merely just an accessory to the Christian faith. It's the literal crux of our faith. It is the center of our faith, the centerpiece of all that we believe. It's central. It's the catalyst for how we live our life. And here's how, what I hope that we can accomplish through just these, just these days leading up to Easter and a brief few weeks where we discuss these themes in a deeper concentration. I'll tell you by way of a story with my three-year-old, uh, Quinn. She can't read, of course. She's three years old. She picks up a book this week that I've been reading through. It's called The Beauty of the Cross, a uh, sermon series based on the book, not the book on the sermon series. Uh, <laughs> but um, you've probably figured that out. I'm reading it, and, and you can also, there's actually have some copies on the bookshelf out there. If you want to um, pick up a copy just for more reflection and um, reading through God's Word on, this, on um, topics of Lent and Easter. It's a great, great read. Um, she asks, she picks it up, and she says, is this a God book? And I say, yes, it is. And she, she opens it up. Uh, it's right side up, which is nice. She opens it up and starts flipping through all the pages, and she just exclaims, she says, wow, God must really love us. <laughs> and I say, Yes, he does. And she said, is that how you read this book? And I said, yes, it is. She has no idea what's in this, but how, that is exactly what we're going to do. Is that, is that how we read this right? When we think about the cross, we think about Easter, we think about what Jesus did. Are we thinking about that right, that God must love us so much? Yes, that is what this is about. That's what this book is about. That's what this series is about. That is what the cross is about that we would look at the cross and say, wow, God must really love us so much. A great place to spend our time in this series is in the book of Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah not simply, doesn't just simply offer us an explanation of, of, of the cross. 
the coming cross of Christ, but a powerful portrait of the personal cost of our salvation, what it cost Christ. And it widens our view of Jesus. It shows us Jesus so that we can worship him, so that we can delight in him, so that we can enjoy him and what he offers to us. And so if you have your Bibles, what I hope for you as we journey through this is that we would see how much God loves us, that this would be a book that teaches us and shows us God's love. I'll be reading from Isaiah chapter 52. If you're looking for Isaiah, you know, they always tell you if you're looking for the Psalms, it's right down the middle, but I always end up in Isaiah somehow. So maybe that's, your, maybe that's it too for you, kind of towards the, the center. Um, Isaiah chapter 52, we'll be reading in verse 7 to 15. Here we go. Let's follow along in God's word. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth shall, shall see the salvation of our God. Depart, depart, go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her. Purify yourselves, you who hear the vessels of the Lord. For you shall not go out in haste, and you shall not go in flight. For the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. And shall be exalted. And many were astonished at you. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. This is God's word. Isaiah takes us back in time, he takes us back in time to a time when God's people really needed some good news. They were in exile. They were in a foreign place. They were in Babylon, cut off from the joy and familiarity and comfort of the land that God had given to them through promise. And they are now exiles with a strange people in a strange land with no memory of home. And they are looking to the hills and waiting for their Savior, someone to come and to rescue them. And Isaiah calls on them and now calls on us many years later to exercise our imagination as we see a messenger running from the mountains, down the mountains, along the mountain range, running as one from battle, and every small town and, and person that he encounters on the way to the city, he is, he is saying, good news. We've, we've won the battle. The war is over. Your God reigns. And finally, he comes into the city where all are gathered as we see this messenger running down from the mountains, obviously out of breath, gasping for air, and mustering up all the energy that he has. He says, we are saved. Peace is here. God is coming. And he's alive. 
This is amazing news. It's the best news. And it would naturally cause the people to wonder, well, how will he accomplish this? And even a better question might be for them, who will accomplish this? Who is the one that, we, that will come and, and to save us and to rescue us and to bring us home? And so God says through Isaiah, he says, look for my servant. Look at my servant. He will be raised up. He will be exalted like a king and he will act and perform in perfect wisdom. What he does will be good and perfect. But then there's this strange twist that Isaiah tells us. God says, but he will not appear wise to the world. He will be wise, but he will not appear wise. He will not appear the way you expect him to appear. In fact, he will be as one disfigured, marred, unrecognizable. He will be beaten and despised and he will be crushed. Isaiah fleshes out this theme a little bit more in the next chapter as we'll see. But he goes on to say that I want to assure you that he is acting wisely and he knows exactly what he is doing. But when you look at him, he will appear as one who has lost all touch with reality. The actions of God's servant will bring wholeness and fullness to life and peace with God. He will, but it will come about in the most unlikely way. For the people that will come to enjoy this good news, it will come about in ways that you and I think are utterly foolish and utterly weak. Isaiah invites us to look at the cross. He invites us to look at at Jesus. And when we do, we discover three things. We discover a deeper understanding of God. We discover a deeper understanding of ourselves. And then we also discover a third way, a surprising way to receive the good news, an unlikely way that people receive this good news. Let's look at these three things together as Isaiah walks us through. First, we discover through this promised good news, we discover a deeper way of understanding God. When we're first introduced to God's servant, this one that will come he will, to bring good news and salvation, he, we are told he is wise. He will do wisely, God tells us. God is saying he knows what he is doing and he is coming. But then we are told that he... what he, what he does is appalling. It's appalling. Think of Jesus hanging on the cross. The night before, Jesus was beaten within an inch of his life. Whips uh, were designed in such a way as they landed into his back to rip flesh from him, exposing bone. Skin and muscle are being torn from his body. A crown of thorns is, is placed on his head and dug into his scalp so that Blood is dripping down his face, drying overnight, covered in his own blood, and left to just be in agony. And in the morning, he collapses from exhaustion as he now carries his own cross from the place where he was to the place where he will soon hang on that cross and die just hours later. And by this point, his appearance is so marred His appearance is so appalling, as Isaiah says, beyond any human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. He doesn't look like a human anymore. He doesn't look like a person. Can you imagine looking at Christ and in that moment, as he hangs on the cross, not even looking human anymore, saying, surely this is a man who knows what he's doing. Surely this is a man who has it all together. And wisdom has brought him to this place. Prudence, good planning. 
You would not think that. You would think, what has gone wrong? Why has he gotten to this place? What steps could he have taken to avoid this? What foolishness. So we, we stand before the cross in confusion. As many did in that time, we wonder, what is this all about? How can this be wisdom? How can God be in this? It is in this confusion we're meant to discover something deeper about God. We assume that if God were wise, and if God were truly good, and if God were one that truly brings good news to the people he loves, he will be one who comes with power and beauty, and we will know him when we see him. When he arrives into town, we will say, this is what God would do. This is what he would look like. But when we see the cross, all we see is weakness. We see defeat. We see shame. Take the verse in this passage where Isaiah says, how beautiful are the feet that bring good news. A soldier having running run maybe 20 miles from the battlefield to the city to proclaim good news, running through miles of dirt and dust and mud and maybe even animal waste covered in sweat, all of this flowing down by gravity to his feet. By the way, he's wearing sandals. Those feet are anything but beautiful. Even clean feet are not beautiful. <laughs> I know there's like an illness and a sickness that some people have, you know. It's love feet, you know. If that's you, I don't want to know about it. <laughs> Just keep it to yourself. That's the, kind of the privilege of anonymity. Even, even clean feet are not beautiful. These worn feet, these traveled feet, these gross feet are appalling. They are appalling, but not so here. They're called beautiful. How beautiful are those feet? They are lovely, those feet. Now, of course, we are meant not to see the form they take. Those are not beautiful feet because they look beautiful. They are beautiful because of what they carry. They are beautiful because of what they bring to us. They are beautiful because of what they deliver. They are beautiful because they bring good news. The cross shows us that God is even more lovely than we even imagine. Even in the form of disfigurement. Even in the form of shame. Even in the form of humiliation. It is in that moment God appears most beautiful. Most lovely because of what he delivers in that and through the cross. From our book, The Beauty of the Cross, Tim Chester, he says this, We see a God who is willing to exchange the glory of heaven for the shame of the cross, the safety of heaven for the pain of the cross, the power of heaven for the weakness of the cross. When we look at the cross, all we want to do is look away. Imagine looking at Jesus again. Imagine that description. Maybe even a moment ago as I described the specifics of Jesus' body and what was done to him. In just a few sentences, you felt it was way too early in the morning to be talking about such things. Oh man, don't talk about that. I don't want to think about Jesus like that. When we look at the cross, we want to look away. It's appalling. 
And to a self-interested person, the cross is foolishness. Why would you do that? But God is not self-interested. He's self-giving. He's self-sacrificing. For through the cross, God rescues the people he loves. Isaiah tells us that he will be high and lifted up. Of course, we know what this is mean. The, the verse is, it, it looks promising when we get there. Good news is coming. Look at my servant. He will act wisely. He will be high and lifted up. And we're like, oh, this is going all in the right direction. This is how kings and queens are given power. This is how kin, kings and queens are given kingdom and authority and leadership on a raised platform. That's why we call them the royal highness, because they are higher. They're lifted up. They're exalted, both in position and often in, in reality. They're on a platform. At one point in Jesus' ministry, he says, I will be high and lifted up, and I will draw all people to myself. The Apostle John, as he's recording these words through eyewitness testimony, he says, he tells us that Jesus said this as a way of letting us know what kind of death he would die. See, from the world's point of view, Jesus was lifted up on the cross to mock him. And that's why the Romans did that. They lifted them high on the cross to show anyone who desired to betray Rome, this would happen to you as well. You see where all your wisdom got you? You see where all of your uh, conniving and mischievous got you? Don't do this. This is foolish. This is shame. This is what guilt looks like. So from the world's point of view, Jesus was lifted up to be mocked. But from Jesus' point of view, he's lifted up to win people to himself. I will be high and lifted up, and, and I will win people to myself. In an amazing act of love, Jesus endures the very thing designed to humiliate himself to save the ones he loved. And in doing so, it becomes the most beautiful act, the most lovely thing, the most beautiful good news brought by the most beautiful feet on the most beautiful blood-stained cross that there ever was. What we see as appalling, God sees as beautiful. What we see as weakness, God sees as strength. What we see as defeat, God sees as, as victory. And naturally, as this passage helps us discover deeper understanding of God, it helps us discover a deeper understanding of ourselves as well. And this is where Isaiah now turns us to see a deeper understanding of, of ourselves. Last fall, for the first time in many years, I went to a carnival that had one of those like hall of mirrors. You ever, be, you ever go through one of that? You ever really want to feel really good about your body? You know, <laughs> go in one of those. You know, uh, you stand in front of one mirror, and you think you're thin, and, and, and it kind of, you know, looks like you swallowed a tire. You know, and you're like, oh, I don't like that one. And then you go to the next one, and it goes straight up, and you look like a pole. And you're like, yeah, that's more like it. And then you go to the next one, you kind of look like a squiggly. And then you go to the next one, you're like, I can't be what I look like, and it's just a regular mirror. You know? <laughs> you're like, I don't even know what makes sense anymore. The cross is like one of those mirrors. You know, we, if we come to the cross thinking we are wise, it shows us that, that we are foolish. If we come to the cross thinking that we are self-sufficient, that, we, uh, that we, we, we have done something good and clever enough to deserve God's acceptance, we see back a reflection that is only uh, foolishness. The cross makes the wise look silly. It makes the wealthy look poor. It makes the capable look 
powerless. It distorts. And so it's like a mirror that reflects back something that we didn't expect. This is what Isaiah means when he says that kings shall shut their mouths because of him. Tim Chester in our book says the cross is where all human wisdom unravels. It's where all unravels. When we look at the cross, we're meant to wonder, why is this necessary? Why did this happen? If we could save ourselves, why did God send his son to do this? Jesus died because there was no other way. If we come to the cross thinking that we are wise and capable enough of finding God, the cross reflects back and says, then why did this happen? Why did God have to give his own son? The cross, like one of those mirrors, makes us look far more needy than we often think that we are. It makes us look so incapable. It makes us look so needy. It makes us look so broken. Two main ways that we avoid seeing ourselves the way that we truly are are through two ways. One, pretending. The other, through performing. Let's just spend a couple moments enjoying what this looks like. To pretend. We might pretend that we're better than we really are. This takes many forms. Here are some. Pretending looks like dishonesty. We say, oh, I'm not that bad. Bad, bad enough. I'm bad, but, but not bad enough that Jesus had to do this for me. We stand in front of that mirror. We stand in front of the cross and see, we say, what a tragedy. But I'm glad that God came to die for those people who needed this. They must have been pretty far gone. It may look like comparison. We say, well, I, I make mistakes, but, but not as bad as other people have made mistakes. Are there gradients of, God's, of, of, of why God had to come and to do this? Did he have to really do that for me? We pretend by making excuses. I'm not bad, just, just really tired. I just a little, need a little me time. So just give me some space. I just have had a long day. And so we don't call it sin. We pretend. We make excuses. It may look like false righteousness. I know I've done a lot of bad things. And that's why I have given great time, energy, and treasure to doing good things. Look at all the good that I have done. I've never admitted that I'm perfect. But look at all the good things I have done. And when we do that, we are standing in front of the cross pretending that we don't need it. And it reflects back a deeper understanding of who we are. We are far more needy than we ever imagined. Then there's something called performance. We live on this treadmill of spiritual activity, trying to gain God's favor by living up to his expectations. We put a nice, we put a nice spin on it, though, don't we, of all the spiritual activity? We, think, we say things like, I'm just a doer. That's who I am. I'm a get-it-done kind of person. It's my personality, really. If there's a problem, then I am your guy. I'm your, your gal. And I'll admit this. You know, when I, you're great to have around when I need to move some heavy furniture. <laughs> so I'm grateful for that kind of personality. But if you're weary of always doing, if you are fatigued from all your doing, you're likely compensating by trying to earn God's approval through your effort. You're likely standing at the cross and saying, I will be the person who doesn't need a kind of God who would do this. I will be the kind of person who, who, who won't 
feel shame when I stand at the cross. Ask yourself this question. What do you count on to give you a sense of security of God's acceptance? What do you count on to give you the sense and security of God's acceptance? A sense of, a, a sense, a sense of his acceptance. That's just a sense of like, does God love me? Does he care for me? When you think of God and how he thinks of you, what look does he have on his face? Is it disappointment? Is it anger? Is it that look that a parent has when they are just disappointed? When are you going to get it right? And so you want to be that child who says, I will get it right. I will make you proud. I will get better. In the sense of feeling good enough through our right actions or a lack of the wrong actions will cause us to elevate ourselves when we succeed. It will cause us to put people down when they fail. And at the cross, when we look at the cross, we see a different picture of ourselves. When people who... Who, who think they are good come to the cross, they just don't get it. They say, I don't get this. When people who think that they're capable come to the cross, they just can't figure out why Jesus had to go through that. But the cross means to show us something about ourselves, something utterly unexpected about who benefits from the cross, that God treats unrighteous people as if they were righteous. All the things that make us proud that we bring to the cross vanish Right when we get there, we come to the cross with all of our good behavior, all of our good intentions, and we get there and we see Jesus crucified on it. And we can only say, well, these are no good here. Obviously, these are useless. Obviously, these have been futile. Because this has happened. And so we learn a deeper discovery of God that he was, that he was willing to give up the treasures of heaven, and take the curse of our sin. We must look at ourselves, a deeper understanding of ourselves, that we're far more needy than we ever could imagine. And the cross is for us. He died for us. We see a final discovery in Isaiah, and that's the surprising way to receive this good news. Now, we started with this picture, remember? We started with this picture of this man running along the, the mountain range and bringing good news to every person he encounters, telling good news of salvation. And Isaiah tells us something surprising, the surprising aspect of the gospel itself, of the good news itself. He says in verse 15, For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. How do we, how do we understand this riddle? <laughs> Instead of moving on saying, well, I don't get that, that's just impossible, you know. Let me ask you, what kind of keys don't unlock doors? You know, piano keys, right? So like, it's like, what do, we, what do we make of this? Like, this gospel, who is it for? The ones who cannot see will see. The ones who cannot hear will understand. What is going on? What are you saying here? Isaiah is telling us how the good news makes its way to us. Isaiah is telling us how the gospel works, how Christians are reborn. If you rely on self-effort and self-will for God to accept you, we will never find Him. In fact, the Bible tells us that 
that he hides himself for, from such people. This is tragic. God hides himself from people looking for him based on their own morality. He will never be found in self-sufficiency and in self-will. He will never be found through self-reliance. There is only one place to find him, and that's at the cross, where all human pride vanishes. There's only one place that we could see God for who he truly is, and it's at the cross. The good news saves us when we see a disfigured, crucified man on the cross, and where we see a dying man in defeat. It's where we see God's love. And looking to him, we are made whole. In looking to him and seeing Jesus and coming with all of our good stuff and saying, these are no use here. How bad am I really? Why did, what, what did it cost God to die and to save me? God says that Jesus will sprinkle many nations through this work. He will sprinkle many nations. Sprinkling was a temple activity which signified cleansing from impurity. It, it, it signified a consecration for good things. In the sacrificial system, the external body often was a, a symbol of the soul, of what was going on in the soul. For example, example like conditions like leprosy and even menstruation or a disfigured person were unclean. They were never able to then offer sacrifices to God because they were unclean. So often what was going on in the outside of the body was, was meant to show a window into the soul. For this reason, there was a prohibition on people who were unclean from participating in this kind of blessing. There was a prohibition on priests who had external disfiguration. Priests were good looking, I think. Priests were beautiful people. They could not be disfigured. They could not be blemished. They had to be pure and to look pure. But God's servant in Isaiah is disfigured. This is a strange thing happening here. God's servant is disfigured. He ought to be unclean, and in a sense he is unclean because he has taken upon the impurities of the people he's dying for. It is through his becoming unclean for us that he is able to then make us clean. He is sprinkling us clean, washing us from impurity of sin through the act of him taking on our impurities. For the one who knew no sin became sin for us. Isaiah tells us that we, like sheep, have gone astray, each of us to our own way, but God placed on him the iniquities of us all. And when Jesus died on the cross, he said, it is finished. Do you want to know God? Do you want this good news? These elements of this good news? Do you want peace? Do you want goodness? Do you want happiness? Do you want wholeness and fullness of life? Do you want salvation and rescue? There's only one place to find it. It's in coming to the cross and seeing a perfect man dying for us. 
If we fail to look at the cross and see Jesus lifted up on that cross, then we will become blind to the good news. If we come to God with our good intentions and wisdom, He will be of no use to us. But if we come, if we come laying aside our self-sufficiency, if we come laying down our pride, then our eyes will be open. Our hearts will be made new. And only then will we be freed from the false sense of security of our own pretending and performing. And only then will we live in the true joy and freedom promised to us in Jesus. Do you see Jesus? Do you see God's servant? What is he doing? What is he saying? What is he like? He is one who is wise. He is one who acts in ways that differ from what we expect, but he is one who takes our shame. He is one who takes the world's wisdom and says, this is no good here. And he gives us life. Would you reflect on that? Deeply, would you dwell on that this season? As we near Easter, in order for Easter to be beautiful, we must see what happens at the cross. Let's pray.